hello and welcome to Vertiguise, episode number 60-something, maybe 70-something, I, I don't know. I think it is actually episode 70, but if it's not, this won't be on the internet. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> We're uh, checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Oh. I thought the big three were Preacher 47, Preacher 48, and, well... We're taking a break this week. <laughs> well, those are average three. Uh, Neither of them are double issues. The big three issues that we're covering that this remember. week. All right. Oh, I am Sean. Oh, I'm Eric. And we're the Verta guys. That's right. We haven't done this in a while. <laughs> We've been on a little hiatus. Wolf I, discreto. I think it shows. <laughs> yes. You know that that's not a joke everyone's going to get, right? Molto discreto? Yeah. Well, it's Italian. People who speak Italian won't get it. No, they probably still won't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about what's happened previously in Preacher. Yes! That's what we do. (laughs) That's how we do this. Yeah. Okay, so briefly, Jesse had a bad turn in which he fell out of an airplane, and we don't really know how he survived that one yet, but when he did survive it, he walked to go find his girlfriend Tulip and his best friend Cassidy and found them smooching. Yeah, and like a whole other... He had to cross like four state lines. Yeah. And then he found them smooching. Smooching in Dallas. <laughs> he meant smooching with everybody! So, depressed, he has holed up in the little town of Salvation, Texas, where he allowed himself to be talked into becoming the sheriff. He also ran into, surprise, his mom, who was not dead. He thought she was dead. Yeah, but she's not. And he's made an enemy in Odin Quincannon, the guy who owns the meat packing plant that employs a lot of people. Not people who live in the town so much as people who come by and wreck it for laughs. Yeah. Now, like the Odin of Norse myth, this Odin, um, he's not like the Norse Odin in any way. Yeah, anything else? Probably worth mentioning that Odin's dominatrix slash lawyer is in love with Jesse a little bit. Yes. She's also in love with Hitler a little bit. Yeah. Also in love with Jesse a little bit is his deputy, Cindy Daggett. Right. So, both white supremacists, I mean Quinn Cannon and Oatlash, yes. not Cindy, but they're kind of different flavors. Odin is more like a KKK white supremacist, and Miss Oatlash is more like a Nazi white supremacist. Except she also doesn't believe that the Nazis were white supremacists, so that's... Right. She has a, a bizarre insistence that they were not racist. But she, by sheer coincidence, I guess she thinks, ended up working for a racist anyhow, so... Yeah. And then there's Cindy, who's an African-American woman and not a white supremacist at all. Right. And this brings us to Preacher number 47. Jesse, Get Your Gun, written by Garth Ennis, art by Steve Dillon, and colors by Pamela Rambo. The cover is by Glenn Fabry. Yeah, and that title is a reference to Johnny, Get Your Gun, which I think is an old patriotic war song, right? It's over my head. Well, show notes will tell us. So on this cover, we've got Jesse in the mist with sort of a skeletal figure looming out at him. Okay, I thought he was just witnessing a geyser. There's definitely like a humanoid figure with something held over its head. Oh, there is a humanoid figure. Well, okay, so at the time, I thought that it was Jesse witnessing a geyser. After reading the issue, or rereading the issue, I should say, I realized that it's Jesse witnessing someone getting struck by lightning. Ah, okay. So, yeah, this is Jesse witnessing somebody get hit by lightning. Who's going to get hit by lightning this episode? Stay tuned to find out. I mean, we could place bets, but we already read the comic books. Yeah, wouldn't be fair. 
So we open in Odin Quincannon's office, where a professional mercenary is explaining... Bob Mustache. That name is not given anywhere, but it's probably accurate. It's probably his name. He's explaining that he has rigged explosives to all the buildings in Salvation. Actually, he says 23 buildings, but I guess it's a small town. Yeah, that's gotta be almost all of them. At least on the main street. And he hands Odin a detonator, and he says that there are these two buttons. One you can push it over and over to set off all the bombs in succession, starting with the sheriff's office. The second button blows up the whole town at once. Now, Odin protests that the last guy who he had set a bomb did a job that wasn't worth a handful of ass flakes. I don't know what ass flakes are, and I'm not looking into it. But this guy says, Last boy you brought in didn't used to be no Navy SEAL, Quinn Cannon. And then he says, That'll be a quarter of a million dollars. Which Odin happily pays him. He happily writes check, yeah. And this is our title page. Jesse, get your gun, it says. Which is probably because that's the title. Seems like you shouldn't pay somebody by check for blowing up a town. I mean, does it matter? I guess being above the law is kind of like the whole point he's trying to prove here. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we find Jesse hanging out outside Jody's bar. And he mentions days turning into weeks, so it's been a little while since his last clash with Quincana as depicted in the last issue. Right. There's been a restive period. And Jesse seems relatively content, although we get a little hint here that he's still drinking too much. Gunther, the former German spy... Yeah, so this is a nice old German man who revealed himself to be a former Luftwaffe pilot who decided he did not want to die in an airplane being shot down and turned spy to sneak away to the United States. Yeah, and he's been living peacefully in the United States for decades. Anyway, he offers to buy Jesse a beer, and Jesse says... Just the one. I got all this whiskey to drink before I start work. So we're getting a little implication that Jesse's still drinking too much. Yeah, he's still functioning with a a high BAC. Well, and maybe not entirely functioning. And there's going to be a conversation that comes back to this idea later on. Yeah. We get a little cameo here from Toby, who tends bar at Jody's sometimes, and he is regularly puking over the stress of realizing he's about to be a dad. Right. Yeah, I think the last we heard of this subplot, he wasn't worried because her girlfriend had missed her period once before, and they asked him when, and he said, last month. Yeah. (laughs) Toby's not very bright. That's the other thing about him. Right. And he calls people dude without even asking if they mind first. Yeah. Gunther believes that Quincannon is not done with the town of Salvation yet. Good call, because he just put 23 bombs here. Yeah. And he says that's probably why Jesse's stuck around. You signed up to beat the bad guy. Right. At this point, Jesse's mom, Christina, steps out and warns him not to act like the Lone Ranger. Yeah, I wondered what she was talking about here. Oh, I see. She's scolding him for saying that the only way things between him and Quinn Cannon are going to end, the implication is he means is with one of them dead. Mm. And that's why she's scolding him for acting like the Lone Ranger. And he says, come on, I'm supposed to be the sheriff around here. Yes, and I'm the sheriff's mother around here. You'll do as you're told. Wow, she's really laying down the law. She uh, chats with Gunther a little bit, which causes Jesse to roll his eyes. And at this point, Cindy rolls up in the cruiser. Yeah, she's inviting him out to Chinese for lunch. Well, I think she's asking if she can bring Chinese back. Yeah, fair enough. See you in the office in an hour or two. Right, even though he clearly says yes. She drives off without him. Okay, so this is a little town so small you have to go to the next little town for Chinese. Right. Also, if you want to get someone to the hospital, as we'll find out later. Right. I'm laying on down all sorts of foreshadowing this issue. 
Gunther and Christina sort of needle Jesse a bit for not making a move on Cindy. Don't you like girls? Gunther, I get down on my knees every morning and give eternal thanks for the existence of girls in an otherwise pointless universe. So what's stopping you? Now we're back in Odin's office, and he is, as he often does, soliloquizing to Miss Outlash. Yes, the theme today is money always wins. That's what boys like this Custer fella never do get. I offered to pay him and pay him well, but he chose to fight me. Took one look at old Odin and figured he could win, yes sir. But ain't what you look like or how tough you are or anything else except what you can afford. Ain't got what it takes to win? No biggie. Just go out and buy it. At this point he mentions that he and some friends bought a president once, but the guy ended up screwing the pooch. Yeah, I wonder if that means uh, Richard Nixon. Could be. Could be. The time frame seems about right, and, you know, Richard Nixon resigned. I thought maybe he meant Lyndon Johnson, who came from Texas and ended up pushing a pretty liberal agenda. And then didn't run for re-election. Right. Now, Miss Oatlash reminds Quinn Cannon that plant productivity is near zero, as they had predicted in an earlier conversation. All the workers quit when they couldn't have the run of the town. Right, just like most workers in America. I mean, the economy must be very strong. If people are like, well, it's an okay job, but I'm not going to do it if I, if I can't break the law with impunity. <laughs> that's, quite no, that's quite a perk to insist upon. Yeah, yeah, valid point. But he did promise it when they moved from Houston, we were told. Oh, yeah, that's true. Maybe they're just going back to Houston. Now, Quinquanon is worried about the absence of the men, mainly because he wants shed number four to be guarded around the clock. Ain't nobody goes in there except Odin. Odin and his meat. Alone with his meat. Anyway, he uh, reviews his plan to destroy the town in front of Jesse and then torture him to death. And you expect Je Sheriff Custer to just sit still for this? Miss Outlash, I expect the son of a bitch to come along in here meek as a lamb. Even as we speak, steps are being taken to ensure it. Right. Okay, so now we cut to Cindy being kidnapped. There's a couple of guys pulled over by the side of the road, and when she pulls up to offer assistance, they pull a gun on her. Yeah, and we recognize as they turn around that these are Brown Suit and Blue Suit, the two bodyguards who've been hanging around Odin all the time. Brown Suit has a broken nose from all the times Jesse has kicked their asses. Yeah, and they're not wearing suits. They're in disguise. Yeah. Yeah, so he can't talk. She says, you gotta get this motherfucker some subtitles, which I thought was a great line. Now, elsewhere we find Jesse talking about Cindy with an unseen person, who will actually turn out to be the Duke. The sort of spirit of John Wayne that gives Jesse advice from time to time. Yes, indeed. There's sort of a neat little detail here that... Jesse's lighter has gone empty, and then the Duke offers him a light, but in subsequent panels, there's no indication that the cigarette is actually lit. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. That makes sense. I, I thought that John Wayne had lit the cigarette, which would be, you know, metaphysically weird. Yeah, that's a pretty fucking fancy thing for a ghost to be able to do. But John Wayne starts chewing him out, saying that the reason that he won't move forward with Cindy is obviously the other little gal. And he also says that he's just treading water. You've been doing just what you gotta do and not one inch more. You've been treading water, and that ain't what I expect from you. Right, yeah. Jesse has been a little bit afraid to go back to Tulip and Cassidy and actually face what he saw in Dallas. And he's been hanging out in Salvation, 
basically out of fear of returning to that and returning to his mission to find God. Well, that sure is a harsh judgment. Hell, Pilgrim, you know any other kind worth a damn? No. No, I don't. He explains that the thing stuck in his craw is Tulip. The thought of them together like that, not a month after what happened. Ah, shit. The thought of her with anyone else at all, after everything we did and said and swore, that just about cuts the goddamn heart out of me. Because Tulip's... I'm gonna finish this thing, I gotta be at my best. And without her, I'm no more than a damn shadow. Without that girl, I'm nothing. Then I guess you know what you gotta do, don't you? Later on, Jesse is drinking at his mother's bar when there's a phone call for him. And just as he takes it, the sheriff's office explodes. You fucking little cocksucker, Quincannon, what the hell are you doing? Quincannon, who is the person on the phone, explains that if he doesn't want the town blown up and Cindy raped and murdered, he had better follow instructions. But meanwhile, Cindy is turning the tables on her captors. Yeah, they seem to have actually gotten her in the trunk of the car, but when they try to get her out of it, she kicks the gun out of his hand. It looks like she catches it in midair, too. You see how it goes flying out of his hand, and then the next panel she's diving through the air with it in her hand? Yeah, that's pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. There's a cool midair catch there. Brunsuit shoots at her with a shotgun. She dodges that blast and runs into the woods. Yeah, also there's a little exchange here where one of the guys says that they're going to kill her no matter what because the, the boss hates black people. And she says, it's mutual, right before she kicks the guy. Yeah. Which I thought was a good line. So, Jesse is now standing on, is this what's called a railroad trestle? Yeah. And he is waiting for Odin, although we don't know that yet. But there's a storm all around. Yeah, standing on a railroad bridge in a thunderstorm, it looks epic as hell. He's got his face set all stony. We cut away once more. The townsfolk are talking about the fact that the whole town is wired to blow, and they can't try running away because that'll cause Odin to detonate it. Skeeter, the dog, is desperately trying to get out of the bar and run and help Jesse. Yeah, and his mother, Christina, pulls out her gun and decides she's going to back him up. I lost him once. I'm never losing him again. He's my son. He's our sheriff. Who's with me? Quinn Cannon confronts Jesse on the bridge. Comes a pissant. There's a whole bunch of posturing here. Minute you flung Odin through that window, I knew time had come I'd have you where I wanted you, where I could crush you. That's what always happens, see? Fella fucks with Odin Quinn Cannon. Sooner or later, he learns to regret it. So, skipping ahead, basically, Jesse asks how he knows Odin really has Cindy. Quinn Cannon whips out a 90s-ass cell phone and calls his men. Well, yeah, before that, Odin also shows him the detonator and threatens to blow up the town. Yeah. But I guess he already revealed that piece of information. He says he's got his finger on the button. Now, it turns out that Cindy can't come to the phone right now because she has the two thugs pinned down behind the car. Right, she's shooting at them from the tree line. They lie and say that they hit her so hard she's knocked out and hasn't woke up yet. But Jesse ain't buying it. I ain't so sure you got shit, Quinn Cannon. I got this, motherfucker. Matter of fact, you take a real good look at your precious little town down there, because I tell you it's going to be your last. He just continues to taunt Jesse, holding the detonator high in the air as he prepares to push the button. Salvation's going to burn. It's going to fry like fucking bacon in front of your eyes. Ain't nothing you can do to stop it. So here it comes. 
Watch and learn, you fuck. Here's everything you fought to protect. Gone in a fucking instant. Here it comes. Crack-a-foom! And Odin is struck by his own lightning. His own lightning? Well, Odin. You know. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, that was pretty fucking lucky, Jesse says. Odin is looking burned to a crisp, but still alive. His glasses have shattered, and we can see his eyes. Yeah, they're nothing special. Yeah, that's right. We've seen them a couple times. They're pretty normal, but you rarely get to see them, because his, his glasses give him this, like, swirly eyes look. He warns Jesse to get back, brandishing his revolver. It seems like he's lost the detonator. It's laying right there, but I figured that it was shorted out and would be of no use to him, even though we see later that it actually works. Yeah, it's smoking. I guess he's he's either too fucked up to try to find it, or he doesn't think it'll work. Yeah, but in any case, he leaves it alone and is just waving his revolver around, and he misses Jesse but hits Hector in the throat. Yeah, the townsfolk have been coming up behind Jesse to offer support, and just at that moment, one of them gets shot in the throat. Now, Hector is the Mexican-American guy who unfortunately has to hang out with a bunch of racists all the time. Yeah, hangs out with a bunch of rednecks because they're the closest thing to friends he's got. Now, the townsfolk gather around Hector and try to tend his wound. This is where we learn that the nearest hospital is in Kilcane. We have the tearful Cora now apologizing for constantly referring to Hector with racial slurs. Yeah, and she's coming off as... I I don't want to say she's coming off as something less than sincere. I think she means it, but she hasn't learned any lesson from it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. She, She realized that Hector means more to her than she knew. She hasn't realized there's anything wrong with using that kind of language. Right. Where's the evil dude? asks Toby. Yeah, in the confusion, Quincannon has gotten away, and Jesse decides he still has to go after him because he still might have Cindy. Alone? asks Christina. Yeah, alone. I told you folks to stay out of this, and I meant it, goddammit. Woof! Jesus, okay, you come if you fucking want. Skeeter interjects and makes Jesse take him with. So they pull up outside the meatpacking plant where Quincannon has crashed his car, and... Just as Jesse is looking around for him, a whip coils around his neck, and he gets cold-cocked with a billy club. And it is Miss Oatlash, having captured her perfect specimen. Now, my darling, my Superman, you are my Aryan dream, Jesse Custer, my ultimate physical ideal. Our joining will be a triumph of national socialist purity. You are almost perfect, darling. Almost, she says as she brandishes a pair of scissors. Oh no. That was an action-packed issue. A lot happened there. Yeah, do you think that God intervened to strike Odin with lightning? Yeah, I mean, where God stands on Jesse right now is something we gotta come back to in a couple of issues. But yeah, God getting Jesse out of this fix kind of fits. Yeah. I did not take the interpretation that it was just luck. God wants Jesse to come around on him, right? Like, he's had the opportunity to defeat him. That's and, right. And he's he's keep... taken it to instead, like, give his friends the message, hey, why don't you back down? Right. He keeps, he keeps doing him favors in hopes that he can convince him that he's a good guy. Yeah. Okay, so that brings us to Preacher number 48, Good Night and God Bless. The cover of this issue, which is, as usual, by Glenn Fabry, shows Odin 
looking with alarm at a sausage. Yeah, he's holding up a hot dog in kind of a vaguely phallic way. Uh, I guess so. I guess it could be seen as phallic. This is definitely the, the post-lightning quincannon. He's pretty badly burnt. Yeah, he his glasses only have one eye in them. Uh, and this is the exact same credits as last issue, by the way. So, Jesse wakes up in Nazi town. Yeah, he's tied to a bed in Miss Outlash's, I think, Nazi love den is probably the correct way of putting it. Yeah, Nazi dungeon. Yeah, yeah. You could call it. Yeah, he's strapped to a bed that has a swastika flag over it and a big iron eagle on it. He is in Nazi uniform at this point. Right, and his hair has been cut. Yeah. So that explains what she was angling to do with those scissors. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that even though uh, Miss Outlash cuts his hair to make him look more like a Nazi, he actually keeps it short for the rest of the series. He doesn't wear it exactly the same way. He doesn't comb it. Yeah, but he does keep it short. Maybe it just doesn't have the time to grow back. Yeah, that's, for the rest that's, of the that's a fair call. But he's yeah, got, he's got a significant, a significant haircut, a significant change in his appearance over the course of this story arc. Yeah, and you're kind of, you kind of get the idea that maybe this was a sneaky way to justify doing a little bit of change to the character design mm-hmm. that they just wanted to do anyway. Right. Anyway, Skeeter appears at the window and comes and starts to chew Jesse's bonds. Yeah, starts to chew on the ropes on Jesse's right hand until Miss Outlash indicates that she is nearly ready and Jesse tells Skeeter to hide. Yeah, now, how do you want to describe this outfit that she's wearing here? I mean, it's a sexy Nazi dominatrix outfit. She's wearing what looks to be red leather or vinyl lingerie, and she's got swastika panties on and a Nazi helmet. Yeah, so... I think that the art here is going for a very specific effect. She is a reasonably attractive woman. This is simultaneously attractive and utterly repellent. (laughs) Right. And she calls him the Fuhrer of my love. Also, we kind of passed it already, but we get another woof on this page. Which, you know, Garth Ennis always writes dogs barking the same way. (laughs) Woof! With a little exclamation point. Yeah, I mean, Preacher is pretty over the top. A lot of the time. This is definitely a scene where the hero's dog just busted in to try to save him from some trouble while vocalizing about it. I don't know what you're talking about, but that's fucking awesome. <laughs> um, I'm just saying, except for the Nazi lingerie, that you could get away with this on a Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. You can't get away with this except for everything about the premise. <laughs> Well, the part where the dog helps out, you can get away with it. Yeah, I guess you could even... Can you get away with somebody tied to a bed on a Saturday morning cartoon? Mm. It seems like there's, like... It seems like even in Saturday morning cartoons, like, things kind of go for that implication all the time. Like, Pepe Le Pew and whatnot. Mm, right, right. Anyways. Actually, I'm really thinking of that girl from Tiny Toon Adventures. Oh, Elmira? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, that's a fucking distraction. You but... weren't expecting to have to talk about Tiny Toon Adventures today. <laughs> There's literally an episode where she, like, ties up a character to a chair and makes them go on a date with her. Well, that's not robust consent. No, no, it's not okay. <laughs> not, not okay at all. 
Okay, so she kind of carries on with a bunch of Nazi-themed sexual innuendos for a while. She's waxing poetic about the sex that they're about to have. This will be Blitzkrieg. (laughs) Yeah, which, like, you know, never mind the Nazi part. Just never do that. You don't want to build it up too much. Like, (laughs) just like, what if you actually get in the sack and you find things underwhelming, Miss Oatwash? You know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta temper expectations. I guess she's a professional dominatrix, or... No, she's not a professional dominatrix, but... She's a hobbyist dominatrix. Well, but she's been working on all those guys from the plant, you know? So, maybe she's... She's a practiced dominatrix. So, maybe she, maybe her sexual confidence, like, she knows she can back it up. And that's why it's... That's why it's okay that she's that she's uh, talking things up so much before they get started. Well, not quite, because she's not talking up herself. She's talking up Jesse. Oh, okay, yeah, so she has no way of knowing. Right. So, she uh, jumps on Jesse, but he has just gotten his right hand free. She says, fuck me hard and call me Ava. <laughs> I'm going to put a link to a thing called Crosses the Line Twice. <laughs> like, it's not remotely okay, but it's so not okay that it crosses over into funny. Well, Maybe. I don't think, yeah, we're not supposed to be sympathetic to her, but these, like, Nazi-themed double entendres do afford some space for comic relief. Well, and there's a level here on which the confrontation with Odin was taken seriously, and this is not at all. Right. Yes, that's true. As a matter of fact, we don't even see the resolution to it. We just see that Jesse has got his hand loose because of Skeeter, and then on the next page we cut to he's already got Miss Oatlash tied up, which she does not entirely object to. He thanks Skeeter, says he owes him one, because he really dodged a bullet there. All I gotta do now is get out of here before anyone sees me wearing this shit. And there's Cindy. Jesse, uh, anything you want to tell me about? Jesse notices that she's got Blue Suit handcuffed in the passenger seat of the car. Thought there were usually two of these assholes. Yeah, and then he notices in the back seat, Brown Suit is dead with a bullet through his forehead. Those two lost again for the final time. Yes, he handled that situation like a pro. Now Jesse is about to follow Odin into shed number four. Yeah, Blue Suit really doesn't want him to go. He made us stand guard while he went in. He wouldn't let no one see it, but I heard noises. Terrible noises. I swear to God, he's got something awful in there. Jesse walks through a warehouse full of meat, as we hear once again Quincannon's sexual instructions. Yeah, and they're less and less sensical. <clears throat> now he's saying, smear the cheese, smear the cheese, pluck the hairs, pluck the hairs. Now, say the name, say the name. Jesse looks around the corner with an expression of horror as we finally see what's been going on in the meat shack. Quinn Cannon, with his drawers pulled down, is embracing a giant woman made of meat. Yes, that, that is right. This kind of reminded me of the the guy who tries to fuck the pig corpse in Hellblazer. Oh. Oh. You remember the butcher? Yeah, the really gross butcher. I hated that guy. Yeah. Yeah, we don't like him. But anyways, this comes back to his, like, delusion of the pig dominatrix lady. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Oh, now I remember it. <laughs> yep. Sorry. I mean, maybe this is indicative of some, you know, Odin's attitude toward other people. But I'm almost thinking that's all you got? 
That's kind of the most obvious thing that could have been going on when he's having secret sex in a meat shack, and it's actually considerably not the scariest option if he's coming out of his secret sex room covered in blood. Mm. I gotta say, like, if this had been a Sandman issue, I think the meat wife would have come to life and probably left Quincannon and gotten a job working nights at a Circle K in San Diego. I've seen some fucked up things in my time, but that about takes the fucked up cookie. He puts his foot on Odin's neck and says, If this ain't a mercy killing, I'd sure like to know what is. And we hear a loud crack. Now, I'm trying to, to think whether Jesse has actually killed anybody so far in the story arc. I've mentioned before that I usually think of Jesse as more of a ass-kicking-that-makes-you-a-better-person kind of guy than a cold-blooded killer of his enemies. Right. Well, and he does justify it to himself as a mercy killing, although I think it's debatable as to, as to whether or not it really is one. Yeah, we also had the conversation with the Duke earlier, in which the Duke specifically told him to put Quincannon in the ground, which maybe represents Jesse recognizing that there's no other way out of this. Well, the fact of the matter is that Odin may have a broken spirit, mm -hmm. but he's really not going to stop being dangerous until he's dead. Right, he's come back from Jesse defeating or humiliating him several times, always even hungrier for revenge. Right. Yeah, so Jesse concludes that he had to kill him. Now we see Jesse and Cindy. They have repurposed the napalm, planted it all around Quincannon's plant, and they're holding the detonator. Jesse lets Cindy do the honors. She presses button number two, and the meatpacking plant explodes. Well, Deputy Daggett, I guess our job is done. I just don't know if we did it as legal as I promised you we would. I think we were close enough, Sheriff Custer. Now we cut to Gunther's house in the dead of night. Yeah, Gunther is surprised to find Jesse reading in his living room in the middle of the night. Ain't no one locks their doors around here, Gunther. You ought to know that being such a champion of small town Texas. That refers to a speech that Gunther gave a couple of issues ago where he told the people of Salvation to stand up like Texans. And he is reading Jaegers, Fighter Aces of the Luftwaffe. Jesse has taken this book from Oatlash's collection in the suspicion that, hey, he might find something about Gunther's brother in there. And he did. Yeah, I didn't understand exactly what he found. Can you, <laughs> can you bring us up to speed on that? Yeah, so we had heard that Gunther's real name was Gunther Hahn and that he had a brother who was in the Luftwaffe who was shot down. The book adds, Major Hahn's younger brother Gunther also joined JG-53, but was shot down and killed by hurricanes of 501 Squadron on October 18th. Oh, so, so, so there what is he real... finds in the book is that the person that Gunther is supposed to be is long dead. Right, exactly. There's a I real Gunther Hahn who had a brother in the Luftwaffe, but he was also in the Luftwaffe and died. I get it. Who the hell are you, Jesse asks. He adds that Mark Vanderpoel which is the alias Gunther gave when he entered the States, did enter the States, but in 46, not 43, years after Gunther said he did. Right. Now, the reason that Gunther had to give that actually real name is because Jesse had dug up the deed on the house that he lives in and found it. But this was several issues ago. Yeah, so the key point being that he actually came to the States after the war, not during. When Gunther is reticent to tell the truth, Jesse uses the word of God on him. So yeah, he explains that he found Han's name in records, and since he wasn't even a footnote in history, he never thought he'd be caught out. His real name is Siegfried Vechtel, and he was in the police battalions who uh, marched through newly occupied territory to enslave or kill the population. Yeah, 
Jesse says that he had done a good job setting himself up as a nice, safe sort of ex-Nazi. Yeah. But in actuality, he was anything but. Yeah, he was one of the worst. I had to. They gave me orders and I had to. You don't understand what it was like then. Shit, don't even fucking try that. Said all the right goddamn things, didn't you? You tell your damn story and it sounds real good. It's kind of funny and charming, and it's even partly true, except it happened to somebody else. And then, hell, you you really go to town. All that men of honor stuff, all that down-home bullshit, the myth of America, wasn't that what you said? Gotta hand it to you, Gunther. One look at me and you knew just which buttons to push. It was true, Jesse. All of it. I meant every word of it. I do love this country. I always have, with all my heart. Don't you see? America is my second chance. He says that he had done terrible things, but he's lived a good life ever since he got to America. Yeah, and I have to say, this reminds me an awful lot of some of the lines we've gotten from Cassidy about how much he loves the myth of America, how much he believes it's a place for uh, starting over. Yeah, but there are limits to even America's powers. Now, Gunther says he wasn't trying to mess with Jesse by telling him all this. He recognized Jesse immediately as sort of emblematic of America, sort of an example of what's right with America, and someone who does what's right without compromise. If he could earn Jesse's friendship, he thought, that would be the sign that he'd been redeemed. Can you see past unimaginable horror to find forgiveness in your heart? Please, Jesse, can you do it? Can you reach out a hand to a friend? Gunther reaches out his hand, and Jesse throws him a noose. There's things can't ever be put right. You know it. But I... Go to hell. So here we see sort of the other big theme that's going to come up pretty much for the rest of the comic, the theme of forgiveness. Jesse doesn't have any for Quincannon or Gunther, but what happens when he's wronged by someone he actually likes? Well, I think he liked Gunther uh, enough. And as for Quincannon, you know, he tried to to live and let live with Quincannon, to, to teach him a lesson and then let him go on his way. He tried over and over, and Quincannon always just, you know, came back with a meaner idea. Yeah, that's true. But it does seem that the limit of Jesse's forgiveness is, you know, Nazi atrocities. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying at all that Gunther is uh, deserving of forgiveness. Right. Like Jesse says, there's, there's some things that you can do that can never be put right. Yeah, but as Jesse goes forward to confront uh, the real antagonists of the comic in the last few issues, we're going to see how much mercy he has left. So now we find Jesse digging through the ruins of the sheriff's office, accompanied by Lori Bobbs. I'm real sorry your brothel burned down, Jesse. But don't you worry none, Lori. It wasn't much of a, a brothel to begin with. You're going to leave us soon, aren't you? I saw a bag packed on the front seat of your elephant. Jesse is commenting that all his worldly goods were destroyed in the sheriff's office explosion, and he's digging out a pair of white jeans, which I found pretty funny, kind of lampshading that he only ever wears the one outfit. Right, yeah. Yeah, he must have had a couple of backup pairs. In the pocket, he finds what he's been looking for, uh, which we don't see, and he clenches it in his fist and looks determined. I am thinking that that we're going to find out what this is, that this is the thing that he gives away on the last page. Right, yeah. Okay. At... Jody's bar, which is actually Christina's bar, of course. Toby is trying to think of a word for John Wayne that starts with D. (laughs) Yeah. That's not coming to him. He's thinking of the Duke, I would imagine. Yeah. Christina confronts Jesse. He's planning on leaving tonight, and he hasn't told hardly anybody. 
just the folks I'm close to, which is less than you might think. He looks over and sees that Hector! Well, Hector is okay, but his friends, unfortunately, are still a racist. Yeah, so he's surrounded by friends. He's got Cora fawning over him, but they have placed an enormous sombrero on his head. I know, I know. It's the South. You'll recall a little talk we had about the difficulty of affecting change. At this point, Jesse mentions that he hasn't seen his mother since the funeral. Right, and we obviously take that to being Gunther's funeral. As Jesse indicated that he should, although he didn't use the word of God, Gunther did in fact hang himself. Yeah, and I gotta say, this feels kind of shitty to me. That he doesn't tell his mom why it happened? Right. Or about his own involvement? He just says, I know the two of you were kind of close. I thought I was used to loss. I ought to be by now. But the sheer illogic of it, a man like Gunther, so content with his lot, so calm and rational, and then he up and does a thing like that. No note, no nothing. But those are the thoughts that drive you nowhere else but crazy. Just when you think you know someone, hmm? Sure is a lesson I'm learning. Yeah, I get why it's not okay for an ex-Nazi to date his mom. I just, I hate that she never learns the truth. Yeah, I think he's trying to protect her from it. Yeah. Which is perhaps a misguided uh, attempt at chivalry. Much like how he protected Tulip by leaving her in a hotel room in France. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a recurring issue for him. Yeah. She asks Jesse what he's going to do next. So what's he going to do now? He says he's going to learn some things he needs to know and then finish his job. And then I'm going to bring my darling home to meet my mom. They hug. She tells him to take care because it's a harsh world. Oh, Mom, it ain't that harsh a world. Truly, it ain't. I ain't cried since that morning in the corn, I tell you that. But sometimes I surely do come close. She has a parting gift for him. Yeah, something his father told her to give him when he was a man. So her giving it to him sort of symbolically pronounces him a man if he still needed that. Yeah, and she hands it to him, and he says, This here's the Medal of Honor. Yeah. So I guess his father served with greater distinction than we thought. Okay, so he has one last goodbye that he has to make. Cindy shows up looking incredible in a little black dress. Yeah, he says he was going to see her tomorrow morning before he left, which she doesn't believe. He kind of apologizes for all the flirting that she did, but she said she was guilty of it too. And anyway, I knew your problem right after that night in your office. My problem? You're in love with somebody else, Jesse. You can tell that? She says, uh-huh. Damn. Then she asks him why he was planning to stop by on her the next morning. Just something I got for you, and something I wanted to say. And what might that be? That you are pretty as the stars at evening. They kiss, and... Jesse, she says? As he walks away, and we see that he has pinned the sheriff star on her. And that's where we get our title. Good night and God bless. Yep, and that is the end at last of the Salvation Story arc. Was that eight issues? Yeah. Heck of a yarn. (laughs) Yeah, one of the most direct examples of Preacher as a Western... This and War in the Sun, I suppose. Yeah, and it, it was also like, it's sort of Garth Ennis giving us a story where Jesse stands up to the dark side of the South. Yeah. The, the hatred and bigotry. And and he kind of folded, he folded Nazis in there pretty thoroughly as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's a, it's a story in which Jesse confronts the myth of America specifically as a myth of redemption. 
yeah the, the idea of second chances and that's something that's going to come back right and we see that there are second chances for some and there's people who squander their second chances like odin quincannon yeah and like hector's racist friends do and then we see that there's people who don't get that second chance because what they did was just too awful mm-hmm. to be redeemed and that's poor gunther but Salvation represents a major second chance for both Jesse and his mother That's uh, right. to get to know each other again. Yeah, it's kind of a standard story arc, albeit really well executed. The hero suffers a defeat, so they go into a, a, a smaller place and fight less essential enemies and get back on their feet. The enemies that Jesse faces in this arc have no significance in the greater mythology of Preacher, but what Jesse needs to learn here is the importance of standing up for what's right, that if you do, good people will have your back, and that goodness is occasionally rewarded. With, for example, the discovery that his mother is still alive. It's a restoration of his faith, not in God, but in himself and in the ideals his father taught him. Yeah, and it's a little bit on the nose that the town is called Salvation. <laughs> and yeah. you've, even, you've got Odin Quincannon threatening to blow up Salvation. <laughs> but, but yeah, a fun story. And as we've mentioned before, uh, a memorable enough story that they chose to put Odin in the first season of Preacher, even though this is kind of more equivalent to, like, the third season. Yeah. I'm going to ask a question about the TV here that I'm not sure you can answer. Mm-hmm. In the TV show, my understanding is that they changed the whole meat thing to where he's got, like, a meat wife and a meat daughter, and he, like, lost people and replaced them with meat facsimiles. I don't remember. I'm not even sure that we see that in season one. Okay, so that's not something you know. So that's yeah. that's not important, but I wondered if that was how they had changed Odin for the TV. Which makes him a more sympathetic, more palatable character on his face, definitely. I mean, still super weird, but for much more sympathetic reasons. He's still a pretty big shit weasel, as I remember. <laughs> okay. Now it's time for segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a recent Vertigo comic. This week, Sean is going to be reading Hexwives Number 1 by Ben Blacker with art by Mirka and Dolfo. Oh yeah, this is one of the, the new Vertigo line. Yep. Okay, this was Hexwives Number 1, Bewildered and Bothered, written by Ben Blacker, art by Mirka and Dolfo, and colors by Marissa Louise. The cover is by Joelle Jones and Jory Beller. Okay, so you got these witches, and there's kind of like a witch species. They, they have basic witch magic. But each one also has like a specific mutant power. Um, and the two main witches, Isadora and Nadia, they're a couple. And men keep killing them. Witch hunters keep killing them. But one of the basic standard witch traits is they keep reincarnating. And they're born without memories of who they were. But at some point they get them. Right. They come along. But it's very difficult to kill them because Isadora's mutant power is she's really good at violence. As long as any blood has been spilled in her presence. Which is an interesting twist. Yeah. So we get all of this information through combination of visual flashback and some some asshole explaining. And we eventually find out that this asshole is a guy named Aaron, who is from this family, the Gabriel family, who've been trying to kill witches forever. And he's got a plan, because it turns out that a willing kiss from a mortal pure uh, somehow seals a witch's powers away or something. And he's got what he refers to as a nuclear bomb, which is something scary in a rocking chair. We don't get to see what that is. Right. It's probably Norman Bates' mother. 
Yeah, that's probably what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. We discover that three years later, all of the witches are living in this community, and they've all been married off, it seems, to members of this, like, witch finder group. Uh, and they right. are they are super Stepford wifey, and it's creepy, and they don't, like, have inner lives or aspirations of their own. Although they're kind of, they're kind of subverting that system, even. Because a couple of them are studying architecture behind their husbands' backs, and they're all secretly smoking. Yeah, they're a little bit feisty, but they're not, they're not really independent anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's a bit here about how... Well, I always find Eric's work interesting. I ask him about everything. Not me. If my husband wants me to know, he'll tell me. Besides, I'm too excited to share about my day as soon as he gets home. So, like... Yeah, kind of cringy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's very clearly the present day, even though they're kind of uh, stuck in the 50s in this village. And then I sort of thought that the Isadora was going to cut her finger and get her memories and her powers back, but... That does not happen at the end of the first issue. Yeah, although maybe the danger is there. Right, yeah, that's sort of implied by the fact that there's a there's a little dialogue implying that her husband really doesn't want her to cut herself cleaning up broken glass. Right. Yeah, so that seems like what almost happened, but they were just teasing us. Yeah. So, did you find this, like, treatment of witches to rely too heavily on cliché? I mean, we got a Salem witch trial scene and everything? Or did you think that it had enough effective twists on the formula? It opens with a pretty effective explanation of how witches are different in this world. What the rules are for this comic. It's cliched in some respects, but not in others, and it's perhaps frustrating to me that we get this whole implication that, like, the history of the United States has been intertwined with these two witches trying to find each other for centuries. And that's not what the comic book is about. <laughs> well, it could be what the comic book is about. You know, we could get flashbacks in every issue. True. True. That kind of setup. So it's okay. Some of the action's kind of hard to follow when it actually gets into action sequences. And I guess I kind of wished for more of an inciting incident in the first issue. Well, yeah, there's definitely enough going on in the first issue to explore. You know, it sets up future issues. But maybe it doesn't quite give you the inciting incident that you want. It's definitely unabashedly political. Go on about that. Uh, the protagonists being a lesbian couple who are literally forced into into traditional marriage as a way of taking their power and independence away. Oh yeah, sure. Did you find that effective? It's fine, you know. It's The world of this little Stepford town doesn't appeal to me as much as other things that the comic has put forth. So I don't know how much the intent is to keep the status quo going for a little while. Ah, I see. It's kind of like on the Runaways TV show. I only watched the first season. The second season is out now, but I haven't seen it. But the first season of the Runaways TV show, I think, became a little too enamored with the sort of, like, eerie suburban world that it had created. Okay. Where they're like... Living with their parents, knowing or at least strongly suspecting that their parents are supervillains, and running around doing stuff behind their parents' back. Does and it so, basically take the whole first season to get to them running away? They're still living yeah, with they the don't run, for the whole season? They don't run away until the ass end of the very last episode. Okay, first okay. Season. Yeah, so, which, which I thought was unforgivable. <laughs> but, but the show, like, clearly became kind of enamored with this, like, you know, weirdness lurking under the surface of the suburban life kind of idea 
and wanted to take the whole season to explore that. Right. So it's interesting to think of how these women will rebel within the stricture of this world that they've been placed in, these sort of mental restrictions that have been placed on them, which aren't super well explained at this point. But it's not as interesting to me as them actually just breaking loose. (laughs) Right. What did you think of the twist ending? Oh, what, that Aaron is specifically Isadora's husband? Yeah. I, I didn't really see that as a twist ending. I guess I thought that part was obvious. Oh, you saw it coming. Yeah, that that's the way it had to go. Okay. What about this art? Despite being kind of a dark comic book, it's very brightly colored. Not just in the, uh, like, Stepford Wives part, but really throughout the whole thing. You don't have, like, a dark noirish thing going on with the color tones. Yeah, mostly I liked it. Uh, Effective character designs. I did complain before that the action is kind of difficult to follow when Isadora gets off the chain. Right. I think the delivery of the of the Stepford world is is pretty effective, and I uh, I sort of like this nine panel grid in the middle that shows Isadora getting ready for her day and blow drying her hair out to turn it into this kind of fifties curl. That's kind of an effective slow burn reveal there. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's a cool page. So, do you think you're going to be reading more Hexwives? I could stand to read the second issue and see how it develops as a story. All right. Well, that was Hexwives number one, Bewildered and Bothered. Well, that'll just about do it for us this week. In our next Preacher episode, join us as Jesse Custer ventures into the land of bad things. But first, in one week, we return to Sandman with Sit Down, You're Rockin' the Boat. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, why don't you check out our website at vertigize.blueberry.com. That's V-E-R-T-I-G-U-Y-S dot B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. C-O-M. <laughs> yeah, we've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. If you have any questions for us or comments... You can reach us by email, vertiguys at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at vertiguys. You can reach me at blankcastshawn. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash And if you're enjoying our show, it would be great if you would leave a positive review for it on the Apple Podcasts app or on any other platform where you happen to find it, or just tell a friend about Vertiguys. But as always, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everyone. I'll karate your mom, I'll karate your dad, I'll karate every friend you've ever had. Is this, what, is this new material? I write hit songs. <laughs> hit songs, Sean. Yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> hey, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs>